My name is Noah Joyner, and I serve in a few different roles here at North Wake, but one of those is adult education, and uh, so it's like Sunday school. We call that Life Change Fellowship, and that happens at both hours on Sunday morning for those of you who are not serving. This is a really good way to get really plugged into what for women and men. Uh, so lots of, lots of really good stuff going on there. Uh, I'll be preaching this morning because Larry, our pastor, our senior pastor or pastor pastor, whatever you want to call him, uh, he is teaching in Life Change Fellowship. So that's a really, really good opportunity. Hope that you guys were able to get over there uh, last hour. If not, he's actually going to come in for a moment uh, next week also. So make sure that you make yourself available for that. So you're stuck with me for this week. I have a confession to make. Uh, I don't like to be told what to do. I like to be the king of my own life. Uh, I like to do what I want to do. And my wife, that's probably her favorite thing about me. Um, But the irony of this is that many times I submit myself to other kings. For example, what you think of me. That, that might be something that I am tempted to make more important and to, to submit myself under. The Bible tells us that when we sin, we're actually submitting ourselves to sin. And that, that sin can rule over us. And so I'm a person who wants to rule and have dominion, but many times I put myself in dominion under other things. So, so why is that? What, what is that all about? In my estimation, humans are a strange mix of desires to rule and reign while yet having the desire to be ruled and reign over another. So a desire to to be ruled and a desire to rule. Two things at, at one time. We see this in American politics. So the people, they want freedom. You know, they want to be free to do what they want to do. Yet, if the government doesn't act on their behalf, they're disgruntled. We see this in parenthood. Our children want to be free, but then they're frustrated when we don't lead and guide them. And I see this many times in, in American churches and, and Haitian churches specifically. That the people, they want a leader who's strong and direct, but not too strong and direct. They want to, they want to be able to express themselves and, and have input and, and direction. And I think that we could look at any institution that we find ourselves in and see this mix. And I think with a bit of reflection, I suspect you would notice the same thing in your own life. A desire to rule over things and and also a desire to be ruled in some ways. And I believe this desire to rule and be ruled comes from how we are made. It reflects how God created the world. And how he created man to rule and reign over it. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so we see that God intended for man to have dominion over the creation. But that dominion and subjection of the world by mankind was not without boundaries. 
Look with me in in next page over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they had a mandate to work and protect the garden. And they had things that they could eat and things that they could not eat. And so we we see that they are under the rule and reign of God at some level. That God is setting the boundaries of how their dominion would function. The mandate for humanity to reign was under the authority and rule of God. Man was to rule over all creation under the rule of God. And this is how it's supposed to be. But man rejects God and his design through disobedience and pride. This reality of of a desire to to rule and be ruled, this this reality unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture. And we, we see this. Adam names all of the animals, expressing dominion over them. Then he submits himself to a talking snake who leads him away from God. The Hebrews are triumphantly freed from Egyptian slavery. They have an opportunity to go into the land and take possession of it to exert dominion over it. And they beg to go back to Egypt. Israel begs for a king like all the other nations when they could have been free to have God as their king. The people welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, calling him king, and then they reject him saying, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. And all these instances show a departure from how God made man, and it shows man's desire to be ruled by lesser things, lesser kings, lesser gods. And so what I've just told you is foundational to understanding the world in which we live and why it's so broken. It's also foundational for understanding our passage this morning as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And so I'd like to pray before we we open the word together to prepare ourselves. And as we do that, I'd like to ask you to stand as a really simple way to just say, Jesus, I want you to be king. I want to submit myself to you and your word. Come have your way with us. And so as we stand, we are, we are welcoming Christ into this place, Christ our King. And so, King Jesus, we do pray that you would come and speak to us through your word. Have your way with us. Control us and guide us. Put us in submission to you. And that this great salvation that you proclaim to us through this beautiful book, that it would be our heart's desire to to stay near you and to lay our hands upon you, to not drift. Father, I ask that you would draw us near into your son, Jesus, to a life with him through your word, and that this morning would be part of that process as we open your word together. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. If you look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, you'll see this. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. We've learned already in the letter to the Hebrews that the angels are by nature less significant than the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. The Son is greater than the angels in countless ways. The writer of Hebrews continues his explanation of where the angels fit into the economy of God by saying, It is not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. 
So what is clear in this verse is this. Angels will not be the rulers of the world to come. And by the world to come, we should assume that coming kingdom of which Christ is the king, which has already been alluded to multiple times in chapter 1. And this idea of this kingdom, this city, this mountain, it will become explicit by the end of the book, specifically when we get into chapter 12. But what is unclear in verse 5 is exactly to whom will the world come to be subject? Who will this world be subject to? If you read in verses, uh, in the first chapter, 1 through 14, you may be thinking, well, of course it's Christ. But then as you look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter 2, it seems like verse 5 could be talking about humanity. I believe the writer is being a bit ambiguous here. And I think he's doing that for effect. And I'm, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow his lead and see if we can clear things up as we go. So I'm not going to tell you who it is just yet or who I think it is or who it may be. So what do we know so far? We know that there is a world to come. And we should assume that this world is the one that was inaugurated when Christ took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high after making purification for sins, as we saw in chapter 1. That world will not be subject to angels. And then lastly, to whom that world will be subject is a bit fuzzy in verse 5, because the author doesn't tell us exactly. And so, could be Christ, could be man, And let me introduce a third option. It could be both rather than either or. So hopefully that will become clear as we go through. Now, let's look at verses 6 and 8 together. It has been somewhere testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Our author, he introduces a portion of Psalm 8 as a rationale for what he has said in verse 5. And he introduces the psalm by saying, somewhere it says. And if you're like me and you have a terrible memory, that's comforting to you. Because it seems like, well, maybe he doesn't know where this passage is. But, but this, this phrase, we shouldn't read it as meaning that he doesn't know where to find the passage. Because humanly speaking, the writer of Hebrews may be the most skilled New Testament author. And he definitely knows where this psalm is, and he, and he knows that David wrote it. Yet he does not want to highlight himself or David. He means to say, God said this. It is God who is taking action in verse 5 and here in verses 6 through 8. So, if we look at Psalm 8, we will see that it gives us a glimpse into the heart of David. He's thinking about how great God is, the king of the earth, and and his greatness is higher than the heavens. David can't control himself in in just the, the language that he's using about the greatness of God. He says he's higher, God is higher than the highest place. And And as David's looking at the stars, he feels 
very small. I remember the first time that I had this experience. I was about 17 years old. A couple of my friends and I were hanging out, and we were looking at the stars. And I remember looking up at the stars and thinking, I am nothing. That vastness out there means that I'm so small, and I felt insignificant. And I think that that's exactly the experience that David is having, and he's, and he's talking to God about this. He looks at the stars, he feels small, and then he wonders, what is humanity that God thinks on him, or individual people that God would care for them? Then he reflects on creation, how God put everything under man's authority, under the dominion of man, subject to man, and how God crowned man and woman with honor and glory. And reflecting on creation and man's role in it makes him say to God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Consider this. Our Lord is so in control, so kingly, and so majestic, so sovereign, that he can give dominion of his creation to man. Then man rejects that role, leaving the world in a lurch with no one to run it as it ought be run. And God is no less sovereign or majestic. He is not to be faulted. He has not lost control. And his name is still majestic in all the earth. Many times when we reflect on how it is in the world, the brokenness in the world, the disorder here, many times the temptation is to say, God, you're out of control. You don't have this. You are not good. But David doesn't do that. David says, no, no. He is majestic in all the earth. His name is great in all the earth. David does not mention the fall of man in this psalm, but, but we, we know that he knows it firsthand. He's experienced it, yet his Lord is majestic in all the earth. Imagine if I were president and I appointed a secretary of state, a good friend of mine, my right-hand man, and on day two, he quits. He gives all the nuclear codes away. He sells all the secrets. He starts World War III and four. Would, would my name be majestic in all the earth? No. My name would be mud or something worse. I would be to blame, but not with God, because his sovereignty remains intact, and his majesty does not waver, because God's purpose remains. God has a plan, and his plan is that he would put man over all creation, that creation would be in subjection to man. He would have dominion over all of it. And that would be part of the honor and glory of being created in God's image. And as we move ahead through verse 8, the writer of Hebrews begins to give some comments about verse 8, or about Psalm 8. So look with me at the second half of Psalm 8. Let's see what he says. So he's, he's read Psalm 8, and now he's going to tell us about it. He says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the author clarifies the extent to which God intended humanity to rule the creation by saying he left nothing outside of his control. What he is saying is that the whole created order was to be under man's economy, direction, and rulership. Animals, plants, mountains, weather, angels, everything. 
in effect, he had been given the keys to the kingdom. Now, many of you are thinking, as I speak these things, you're thinking, what the heck are you talking about? The world is not in subjection to humanity. I can't even balance my checkbook. I can't make my dog pee outside rather than inside. (laughs) Much less exert control, dominion over creation. If you saw my garden this past summer, you would know that man does not have dominion over creation. It was a mess. I did my best, and it fought back, and I gave up. And this is exactly what the author is saying when he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The word see in this verse denotes more of an experience or to see with the mind's eye. And he's saying the subjection of all things to man, that's not our experience. That's not what we live under day to day. And God's vision for humanity is one where he rules and reigns. He conducts and controls. He founds and flourishes. But brothers and sisters, if you've been in this world for more than a week, you know that it's not like that. Regret and confusion and frustration tend to summarize our experience here. It was my last semester in college. I had three part-time jobs and two kids, and my wife was pregnant. And we found out that our little one had some health issues, and and he was born, and we found out those health issues were were much more severe than anyone had thought. And, And he had a surgery that was intended to fix things but really seemed to make things worse. And then he got a blood infection. And the doctors, they they came in and they said, you guys shouldn't be so hopeful about all this. And then I got a call. A friend of ours had been murdered by her boyfriend and her family wanted me to do the funeral. I prepared that eulogy in a hospital cafe. And that afternoon as I stood at that podium looking into the faces of her mom and her dad and her friends, most of whom were teenagers, the only thing I could think was, it's not supposed to be like this. My baby should be at home rather than in a hospital. And my friend should be alive. That was most likely the worst moment of my life standing at that podium that day. And the odds are I'm going to have another day like that. Maybe worse. Odds are you're going to have a day just like that or worse. This world is out of your control. It will not obey you. Try as you might, it will leave you broken and tired and face to face with a grave. And ultimately, that grave will be yours. Things are so broken in this world that those who should rule over it are finally killed by it. So what hope is there? Look with me in verse 8 for three letters that will change everything. Y-E-T. The word yet. We do not yet see everything in subjection to man. But these letters tell us that that is coming. One day, all that God has planned will be put into place, and all that he planned will come to pass. And one day, we will be what God has made us to be. 
Last week as we studied verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, we were encouraged not to neglect such a great salvation. And I believe the writer of Hebrews intends to motivate us to that same reality. Don't neglect this great salvation. He wants to motivate us by the fact that our salvation, when it has fully come, will include his people, God's people, those in Christ, that they will reign over creation as God intended in creation. All things will be put right. In his fantastic little book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, author Cornelius Plantinga, he, he's talking about how the Old Testament prophets look forward to a day where all things will be put right. And he says this, those prophets, they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be, put, would be put straight, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise, and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the desert would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in the streets, from men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A state of rich affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures to whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So, how is this accomplished? If we don't see it now, how can we be sure that it will ever come? And what has God done to bring about this reality? So what has God done? Look with me in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone the author introduces a contrast in his thought process by inserting the word, but you know something important is coming when you hear hear the word, but. And my mentor, Jeff Doyle, taught me long ago, the truth comes after the but. Like when your kids are telling you how great of a dad you are, and then they say, but. Or when your boss is telling you what a great job you're doing, and he says, but. The but tells you things are about to get real. And here they're about to get real good. Because for the last 20 minutes, we've been wallowing in the fact that uh, we have failed. Right? We, we want to hear where is this hope. And the hope 
that we find in this verse. His name is Jesus. This is the first time the name Jesus has been used in the book. Does anybody remember why Jesus got named Jesus? Remember why? What? Because he will save his people from their sins. Because his name is salvation, or God saves, right? So we're talking about this great salvation. He says, Jesus. I don't think that's by accident here. So here in verse 9, the but will work like this. Here's how the argument works. God intended that all creation would be subjected to man, yet because of sin and disobedience, we do not yet have that experience. But there is one who has done all, all the things that every other man failed to do. So the author here says, we see him. The him here is Jesus, and the contrast that he's, that he's working is highlighted even further because the word for see here in this verse is different than the word to see in verse 8. In 8, it meant something like to experience, but here it's to see with one's physical eyes. And it seems that the author is introducing this point and that it will f- unfold more as we go through this passage next week, that Jesus is especially human. He could be seen with the physical eye. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit or an angel. He's a man. In every aspect that one could imagine or or identify humanity, he is that, fully and especially human. So much so that the author can apply a psalm about humanity to him. When he says that Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. He's not diverging from the truth or intention of Psalm 8, of which he's referring. He's saying that Jesus completely fulfilled what God said in a way that no other human ever did. He did what God intended humanity to do, but didn't. He did what Adam was supposed to do. He did what you and I are supposed to do. Remember, he exerted dominion over creation. Animals did as he wished. Weather and plants obeyed him. Angels served and submitted to him. And he did all this under the authority of his father. So he's ruling under the authority of his father. So he truly did all that Psalm 8 envisions, all that God intended in creation. But there's more. It says he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So though he fulfills Psalm 8, he also transcends it. He goes further. He did just what he was re- he did just what was required of man, but he also did what no other man could have done because Jesus was God. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, it says this. 
who though he was in the form of God, this is speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped onto or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul here is saying almost exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God the Son, equal with God, humbled himself by taking on flesh, by becoming human, a completely obedient human, even to death, death on a cross. Because of this death, he is exalted and given the name above every name. And one day, every knee and tongue will submit. Heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue, everywhere, every person, everything, all places. For the glory of the Father, under the authority of the Father, Deferring to the Father. So Jesus, obedient death and resurrection, is his crowning, honoring, and glory-sharing feat. So he accomplishes something through his own death. What do you and I accomplish through our deaths? Nothing. He accomplishes something through his death. We see here in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 2 verse 9, that, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. And the idea that Jesus took on death or, or died the death we could not die to give us the life we could not live, that idea is really going to take shape as we move through the book of Hebrews. That no one else could do it. And that he is particularly appointed and fit for that work because being fully man and fully God. Only he could do that. And we see that kind of unfold in chapter 7 of Hebrews in verses 26 and 27 where it says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, it's talking of Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so Jesus was able to do something that no one else was able to do because he is without sin. This is crucial. His absolute obedience to his father qualifies him to do the thing that we could not do, to rescue us, to bring us out, and to recapture all that we had lost. So Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sin through his death. This is the remedy for all that man had suffered, all that man had broken. It is how this great salvation is accomplished. Our salvation is accomplished through the death of Christ. He gets something out of his death and is raised again. You've noticed that it says, you may have noticed that it says back in Hebrews um, chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted death for everyone, and then here in Hebrews 7, that he offered himself once for all. 
And you may be asking yourself, so, so does this mean that all will experience salvation? And that's a really good answer, a really good question. And the short answer to that is no, as the Bible does not communicate a universal salvation. And as we are in the middle of the argument of the book is this, don't neglect such a great salvation. What happens if you neglect it? Judgment, right? So there's some limitation to this everyone or all. And it refers to those who would trust in Christ, those who would not neglect this great salvation. And that Christ secured death for those who would trust, for his people. And those would be saved. So the author of Hebrews, he he holds up this great salvation in the beginning of chapter 2. And we find out that that salvation has a name. His name is Jesus. And he has done all that man did not do in obeying God by subduing the earth. And Jesus also did all that man could not do to bring himself back to God. So our great salvation in Christ brings us back to God. But it also seems that we will be restored to have dominion over creation as God intended. A rulership, a dominion over creation that's under Christ. That as the one true king, that we will rule in some mysterious way under him. John Piper, uh, he has a really great short little article on this passage. You can read it in about a half an hour. I found it to be very helpful. Um, And and he says this about our salvation. He says, our salvation is indeed very great and worth embracing with joy and perseverance because God did not subject the world of our salvation to angels, but to humans, to us. This is why our salvation is so great and immeasurably valuable. Because in this salvation, we are destined for something unspeakably great. We are destined to have all that is in creation put in subjection under our feet. It will all one day serve us completely for a good and joyful end. So he's saying all that God intended will be be accomplished. God will get and work out his plan. I'd like to add to that, that, that... The greatness of this reality is that we will rule under Christ, the true king. Because he will make all things new and he will set all things right. And so when we hear this, we think, well, that that sounds kind of prideful. No, no, I think that we will be put in a position to enjoy all that God planned for us in submission to Christ that we will have constraints on that rulership and that it will highlight and point to the true King Jesus. One day, the deepest longings of your heart will be met, those given by God, and the deep desire to see the world as it ought to be will come to pass. Your fears will be stilled and your hearts will be healed and you will reign with Christ. What does this tell us about our great salvation? Not just back to God, but back into the place that God intended, doing the thing that God created his people to do. So I want this message 
to stand shoulder to shoulder with the message that Larry gave us last week as he spoke about not drifting away from or neglecting this great salvation. I want this to encourage you to pay closer attention to the message that was given to you because we have a great salvation. So if you were here last week and and God convicted you of something and you left this place and you forgot to do that thing or you didn't put that into play, you get a do-over. Look back in your notes. Remember what God was working on you about and commit to do that thing. Walk in that thing. Walk in that obedience to God as a way to draw near to God in obedience, as a way to not neglect this great salvation, to press into this great salvation. Pay closer attention. Don't drift. What awaits us in this salvation is unspeakably great. And the God who has orchestrated this salvation is unspeakably great. Do not neglect him. Don't neglect his son. And do not neglect the message that brings this salvation into our lives. This salvation is too great to neglect. And what is at stake is too great to not pay close attention. I want to pray that God would do something in our lives that we can't do to ourselves to give us affections that we can't, cannot create in ourselves. And as I do that, I want to, again, I want to ask you to stand in an expectation that God is going to do something that as we submit ourselves to him, as we recognize his majesty in some way by standing, that we're submitting ourselves to him as the king of our lives and saying, yes, I want you to do all of this in me. I want you to accomplish your purposes in me. I don't want to drift. I want to draw near. I want to pay close attention. I want to make sure I'm not neglecting because this is a great salvation. To be brought back to God and to be reestablished in what God intends for his people in creation. So let me pray that for us. Father, I'm thankful that uh, you are mindful of, of us, that you have not forgotten us, and you've not moved on. You've not um, gone to, to plan B or C, God, but that you will accomplish what you intended for your people. You are so sovereign, so in control, so wise and powerful that you will bring us back in Christ to what you've always intended for us to be, that we would be fully human again, that you, God, would exert your control over our lives and that we would, we would reign with you is, is unimaginable. And so we, uh, we affirm, I don't, I don't know I don't know exactly what that means, but I want it. And we want your nearness. We want to draw near to you, Christ. And we ask that you would, by the Spirit, do that as we study through the book of Hebrews. As we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. We submit ourselves to you anew and ask you to to be our great king. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.